0: Our scripture passage this morning is John chapter 18, verses 1 through 27. So I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 18. It'll be this morning in verses 1 through 27. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, When Jesus had spoken these words, He went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden, in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore again he asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave, cutting off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath the cup which the father has given me shall i not drink it so the roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the jews arrested jesus and bound him and led him to annas first for he was father-in-law of caiaphas who was high priest for that year now caiaphas was the one who had advised the jews that it would that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was the other disciple. Now, that disciple was known to the high priest, and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside, so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper, and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, "'You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you?' He said, "'I am not.'" Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves, and Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Now, the Gospel of John is unique among the gospels in that John records for us events which the other gospel writers did not and he leaves out events from the story which the other gospel writers included and that's all right taken together the four gospels give us a complementary history not an exhaustive history by any means but a complementary history of the ministry of Jesus and so while John records the the washing of the disciples feet And the upper room discourse of chapters 14 through 16, the high priestly prayer of chapter 17, and the other gospel writers did not. On the other hand, John does not record for us the explicit institution of the Lord's Supper as found in the other gospel accounts, nor does he tell us of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so it is here in this chapter as well, in John 18, that John tells us of some things here which the other gospel writers do not. Though all of the evangelists give us an account of his arrest, John gives us some of the details of Jesus' arrest, which are not recorded in the other Gospels. And he also gives us, here in this chapter, a a record of what we might call Jesus' preliminary hearing before Annas. Now, those two things, Jesus' arrest and his hearing before Annas, combined with Peter's threefold denial of Christ, form the three main events of, of these verses that we have just read. And so, as we consider this passage this morning, we'll consider it under three main headings. First, Jesus went willingly to the cross. Jesus went willingly to the cross. Secondly, learn from Jesus how to turn the other cheek. Learn from Jesus how to turn the other cheek. And then thirdly, Peter denied his Lord. Peter denied his Lord. And so first of all, we see that Jesus went willingly to the cross. Now, in recent weeks and months as we've been working through the Gospel of John, we have seen how Jesus knew that the hour had come for his betrayal and his crucifixion. And here we see him not running away but deliberately facing those who came to arrest him. John describes the scene for us there in verse 1 of how Jesus passed over the ravine of the Kidron. On the other side of that brook known as the Kidron, there was the Mount of Olives. John tells us that there was a garden there in which he entered with his disciples. This is, as we know it, the Garden of Gethsemane. And thus, the son of David was in these things, treading the path which his father David had trod before him. When David fled Jerusalem in the wake of Absalom's rebellion, as we heard in the reading of 2 Samuel 15, this is 2 Samuel 15, 23, while while all the country was weeping with a loud voice, all the people passed over. The king also passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. And then in 2 Samuel 15, 30, we find this. And David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went, and his head was covered, and he walked barefoot. And then all the people who were with him each covered his head and went up weeping as he went. Matthew Henry aptly noted the typology, the connection between the event of David and the event of Christ, Uh, By saying this, he said, In his flight from Absalom, particular notice is taken of his passing over the brook Kidron and going up the ascent of the Mount Olivet, weeping and all that were with him too in tears, the son of David being driven out by the rebellious Jews who would not have him reign over them. And Judas, like Ahithophel, being in the plot against him, passed over the brook in meanness and humiliation. There's some... Some typology going on here as David tread this path, and now Christ himself, the son of David, treads this path as well. But thank God there are some noticeable differences between David and Jesus. David's followers stuck with him, did not desert him. Jesus' disciples were all scattered like sheep when the shepherd was struck. And also David was fleeing because of his own sins. David's adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah had brought the sword to his house. And that was why he was on the run. The sword had come to his house. David's trouble was because of his own sin. But the good news about Jesus' trouble was that it was not because of his own sin. The trouble that Jesus was facing was because of our sin. Now, as we know from what John had told us back in chapter 13, we knew that Judas had, had gone out that night for the purpose of betraying Jesus. Judas had made a bargain with the Jewish leaders to hand Jesus over to them. And they wanted this to be done in secret. So we find in Matthew 26, verses 4 and 5, they were plotting to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. And also they said they did not want it to be done during the festival, during the piece of the Passover, lest there be a riot among the people. Their goal was met with partial success and partial failure. They were able to arrest him by stealth there in the garden, but they did not achieve their goal of avoiding doing their evil work during the festival. They did it right on the day of the festival. Judas was going about his business to betray Jesus, and he knew about this place, the Garden of Gethsemane. He had no doubt been there. This was a place where Jesus had often met with his disciples, as we see there in verse 2. So Judas comes there with Roman soldiers and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, and now the former place of instruction and fellowship and prayer becomes the scene of the most heinous betrayal. Jesus' close friend who had shared his his, his bread with him had now lifted up his heel against him, and the Prince of Peace is confronted by soldiers and officers carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. And notice how Jesus responds to all of this. Verse 4. Jesus, knowing that all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? Jesus knew that his hour had come. He knew that the time had come for him to be arrested and tried by the Jews, handed over to the Gentiles and crucified. And indeed, the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, make it clear that As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem that last time, he'd been telling the disciples again and again what was going to happen. On one of those occasions, Jesus told those around him what was going to happen in Jerusalem. And this is what Luke says, Luke 18, 34. He says, the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of the statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. Jesus had told them quite clearly, but they did not get it. But Jesus did. He knew all too well what was coming upon him. This is why he had said much earlier in his ministry, Luke 12:50, I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. This is why Jesus' sweat drops of blood there in Gethsemane. This is why he said to his disciples, My soul is grieved to the point of death. This is why he cried out in prayer, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, not as I will but as you will. All of those words he had passed from Jesus' mouth and all of those griefs had touched his heart before Judas showed up in the garden that night with the Roman soldiers and officers from the chief priest. And when they showed up, Jesus knew all that was about to go down. And yet still, he went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? There was no running, no cowardice on the part of Jesus. He went out to those who were coming to arrest him and he said, whom do you seek? And they told him. They said, we want Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus responded that he was the man. And when he said that, they all fell to the ground. Now John doesn't tell us exactly why they fell to the ground, whether they were overawed by his person or just what it was. But they fell to the ground. Now, though the events are somewhat different, is it not at least reminiscent of what had happened back at the end of John chapter 7 when Some officers of the chief priests, maybe some of the same ones who showed up there in the garden, went to the temple to arrest Jesus, and they returned to their masters empty-handed, and they were asked, why did you not bring him? And they said, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. John chapter 7, those men were overawed by the way that Jesus spoke. And is there not perhaps at least an element of similarity with what we see here? Those who were sent to arrest Jesus momentarily had trouble getting the job done. They were overawed at the speaking of the man they wanted. Now the difference is clear, though. This time they were able to recover themselves and get on with their wicked work. And Jesus asked them that second time, whom do you seek? Again, they tell him. Again, he affirms that he is the one whom they want. And therefore that they should let the others go. Let the disciples go free. And John tells us, interestingly here, that Jesus saying this, let these go on their way, is to fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Now those words of Jesus are pointing back to chapter 17, verse 12, Jesus' high priestly prayer. And we may pause here just for a moment and wonder why Jesus' statement in prayer about keeping the souls of his disciples would be applied to them getting out of Gethsemane without being arrested. Jesus' words in regard to a spiritual preservation in chapter 17 seem at first glance to be applied by John in regard to a merely physical preservation here in chapter 18. Why is that? Well, I think the answer is that there. Physical preservation here in chapter 18 is actually for the purpose of their spiritual preservation that Jesus had prayed about back in chapter 17. Just do a little thought experiment with me for a moment. If those 11 disciples had been arrested that night, had been subjected to questioning, had been put on trial, and had been offered, if you will, a get out of jail free card, if they would just Reject Jesus, denounce their master, and move on with life. How many of those 11 men would have stayed the course? I think Peter's subsequent behavior, even when he was not under arrest and on trial and subject to formal questioning, I think if Peter's behavior gives any indication at all of how the group of the 11 would have done under even more difficult circumstances, the results would probably not have been too pretty. And thus, what we see here is that Jesus orders the means in connection with the end. The great end, the great goal, is that the the disciples would not be lost, that they would be kept in their faith, that they would persevere until the end. And the way that Jesus accomplishes this is that he doesn't allow them to be tempted beyond what they were able. Now in this we see Jesus' tender care for his weak disciples even while he himself was resolutely setting his face to go to the cross. And Jesus still does this, by the way. He still orders the means in connection with the ends. For those who belong to Christ, he watches over them, he provides for them with all that their souls need, and he even delivers them from those situations which would shipwreck their own souls. In other words, a special providence watches over The souls of God's people, God himself, is watching out for us. And this is exactly what we see going on here. Jesus sparing his disciples from a spiritually dangerous situation. And Jesus still does the same for us. And often we probably don't even perceive when this is happening. Now notice here in these these opening verses of chapter 18, the remarkable contrast between the first Adam the Garden of Eden, and the second Adam, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Both men were in a garden. Both were confronted. When the first Adam was guilty of sin and heard the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, he and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And when the Lord God started questioning Adam about what was going on, Adam was looking for somebody else to take the fall. So he pointed to the woman. He said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. He admitted that he had done wrong, but he pointed his finger so that the brunt would fall on somebody else. He wanted to save his own skin if possible. But the second Adam is very different from the first. Here we see him not sinful but innocent in the garden and approached not by God but by sinners. He doesn't hide. Instead, he goes out and he says, whom do you seek? And when they said that they were looking for Jesus the Nazarene, he said, I am he. Instead of trying to drag others down with him or to pass the buck onto them, he was seeking to protect those who were under his care. He said, let these go their way. And when Peter was there ready to take somebody's head off, Jesus said to him, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? The guilty first Adam hid in the garden and passed the blame when God approached him. But the innocent second Adam went out to meet his persecutors and willingly gave himself in the place of his own so that they might go free and so that their faith and their souls might be preserved. There's, there's some parallel events going on here between the first Adam and the second Adam, but there is also a blessed contrast between the two. Is it any wonder then that Paul could speak of Christ's death and contrast it with the, the sin of Adam in Romans five eighteen and 19 by saying, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. Our Jesus went openly and willingly to the cross. He was willing to drink the cup which the Father had given him. And even in doing so, he was careful for his disciples, still looking out for them, still protecting them. These are the actions of our Lord which we see so clearly here in the text. And they testify to us of who Jesus is. And the testimony about Christ which is revealed here is very good news for us. Because what we see here shows us of Christ's love for us. We see that Christ had the authority to lay his life down. that No one took it from him, but he laid it down on his own initiative. As he had earlier said, John 10:18, He willingly submitted himself to the Father in the plan of salvation. And in accordance with that, he willingly accepted the cup which the Father had given to him to drink. He had come to seek and to save what was lost. He came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We see his tender concern for his people. Even though he was under fire himself, he was still the good shepherd of the sheep, taking care that not one of them would be lost. And our good shepherd is still the same today. Cyril of Alexandria in the ancient church expressed it well when he said, How can there be any question? That he will show mercy on them that come after the disciples. For where care is shown in small things, how can there be neglect in the greater? And is it likely that he who showed mercy to a mere handful will pay no heed to a multitude whom no man can number? You can see the point that Cyril is making. Jesus was faithful with a few. He'll remain faithful with the many. Praise God that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same Christ who went willingly to the cross and kept a watchful eye on his own in his moment of trouble will certainly continue now to do the same, now that he is glorified and exalted. And if you've never trusted in Jesus yourself, I want you to understand just who Jesus Christ is, as we see it clearly here in the Gospel of John. Jesus is the Son of God who came into the world To love and to save sinners, to go willingly to the cross, to die in our place. This is good news. This is the good news of the gospel that we proclaim here as Christians. And if you have more questions about what it means to to believe in Jesus and to receive new life from him, you can talk to me after the service, you can talk to another Christian whom you know. We would love to tell you more about this. This is good news for us. And this brings us then to, to our second point that we see in the text which is learn from Jesus how to turn the other cheek. Learn from Jesus how to turn the other cheek. Beginning in verse 12, we see that Jesus was bound and taken to Annas. Annas, as we're told, was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was currently the high priest. Now we may, well, at this distance wonder, why why was Annas involved at all in this? If Caiaphas is actually the high priest, why is, why is Annas taking any part in this? And I think the answer is that Annas may well have been the power behind the throne, so to speak. The high priesthood as it existed then in the first century was in a, a state of disarray. According to the Old Testament law, when a high priest was anointed, he was to serve for life. But in the first century, the office of the high priesthood had become a temporary and political appointment. And so Annas himself had been high priest from the year 6 AD up until the year 15 AD when he was removed from office by the Roman governor who had preceded Pontius Pilate. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that five sons of Annas, in addition to Caiaphas, his son-in-law, each served as high priest. And so Annas is, in a way, a patriarch of a high priestly family. He was older, more experienced, and may well have been regarded by the Jews as the, the rightful high priest. And it's interesting to note that in the Gospel of Luke, when Luke laid out the date for the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist, he mentioned in Luke chapter 3, verse 2, that it was in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. And it seems that John is also willing to speak somewhat of a, of a dual high priesthood, Inasmuch as in verse 13 he referred to Caiaphas as being the high priest for that year, verse 24 he speaks of Caiaphas as being the high priest, yet if you're following the the events of the chapter, verse 19, the reference there to the high priest seems to be in reference to Annas. The chronology of the chapter seems to demand that the high priest of verse 19 be Annas instead of Caiaphas. And so even if Annas was not officially the high priest at the time. He had been high priest before and was certainly very influential in what went down in the upper echelons of the priesthood. And so it seems that on a practical level then, what's going on in verses 12 through 14 and then on down in verses 19 through 24, is that Jesus is essentially going in before Annas for for kind of a preliminary hearing, a hearing prior to that which was to occur before the Sanhedrin. Now, this preliminary hearing is not contained in the other gospel accounts, and neither does John relate for us the events that passed before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Now, he does allude to the trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin in verse 24, and then in verse 28. In verse 24, he says, Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. Then verse 28, if you look down there, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And so that period between verse 24 and verse 28, which John doesn't give us the details of with respect to the trial of Jesus, that would have been when Jesus is before Caiaphas and before the Sanhedrin, when they're asking, they're basically putting Jesus under oath, tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And he answers, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of glory. And so John doesn't tell us that, but he does tell us about this preliminary hearing. And so let's notice what happens here in this round of questioning. The high priest, Annas, in verse 19, asks Jesus about his disciples, about his teaching. It seems like he's trying to feel Jesus out, see if there's any, anything suspicious, anything nefarious upon which he can pounce. Is there anything about Jesus that he could latch on to so as to make this trial quick and easy and bring about a guilty verdict in a no-brainer kind of way. But notice how Jesus responds there in verses 20 and 21. He says, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple, where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. Now, we know from the Gospel accounts that Jesus certainly did speak privately to his disciples. But I think the point to be observed here is that the things which he spoke to them in private were not a different message. Sometimes it was a more fully fleshed out message than what he spoke to the crowds. But he wasn't teaching one thing in public and then teaching something completely different in private settings. The main tenor of what he had said, he had, he had spoken openly. He had said enough in public about himself about the work that he had come to accomplish for those, for anyone who who had heard him, to know who he was, what he claimed he would do. Anybody who had listened to him long enough would have have been able to, to have heard him say the things that the high priest was asking him about. And so Jesus essentially says, don't ask me, ask the people who heard me speak, they can tell you what I said. And this reply evidently was was too much for one of the officers who then struck Christ and asked him, is this the way to answer the high priest? And we should notice here carefully what Jesus does next. He does not, literally speaking, turn the other cheek. He, He didn't. Instead, he pressed in a little bit on this unjustified assault. He demanded to either be told where he was wrong or else to know why he had been struck, if he was right. There were, there were two options here. Jesus either spoke wrongly or rightly. If he'd been wrong, he said, tell me the wrong. If I have spoken rightly, then you tell me. Why did you strike me? And I think this helps to shed some important light on Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, especially uh, Matthew 5, 38-42, that passage that we read together this morning because, strictly speaking, Jesus himself did not literally do what he had commanded. Now, what are we supposed to do with that? As Augustine asked, or said, some will say here, why did he not do what he himself commanded? For to one that smote him, he ought not to have answered thus, but to have turned to him the other cheek. Now, I think two things can be said in reply. The first, in the words of Francis Toriton, is that the teaching of Jesus concerning turning the other cheek must be understood proverbially and hyperbolically, not according to the letter. Turgeon goes on, he said, For Christ himself did not turn the other cheek to the one smiting him, John 18:23, nor did Paul, Acts 23, 3. The meaning, then, is that it is better to be ready to suffer new injury than to return an equal injury or recompense evil for evil. That is to say that what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is that we are not allowed to take private revenge. We are not allowed, in the words of Romans twelve seventeen, to repay evil for evil. It is better for us to suffer evil and be ready to suffer evil again than to put forth our own hands to do evil. But it is an entirely different thing to seek to prevent evil from being done, if we can seek to do it in a just way, or to speak truth in the cause of righteousness. Now Jesus here, as we see, was certainly not taking revenge for what had been done. He was not rendering evil for the evil that had been done to him. He was simply asking where he was in the wrong, or where the officer who had struck him was in the wrong. If I said, what's wrong, you tell me where I was wrong. If you struck me, Because I said the right thing, then why did you do it? The command to turn the other cheek is not a command to be a doormat to anyone who may want to take advantage of you, but it is a command to prevent us from doing the evil of seeking revenge. Now we understand that there are other portions of the Sermon on the Mount that are to be understood in a proverbial and hyperbolic way. So Jesus says this, If your right eye makes you stumble... Tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. Now maybe you have, but I have not ever met a Christian who put into literal practice those words of Jesus. I've never met a Christian like that. Most of us here have two eyes and two hands, despite the fact that our eyes and our hands have been the instruments of sin. Now, you see the point. Obviously, we have to be careful in interpretation, but there are some of Jesus' teachings that need to be understood in a hyperbolic way and in a proverbial way and not taken literally. That is, in the most wooden and literal way possible. The second thing that can be said here with respect to our Lord's conduct, is that even though he did speak to the one who struck him and did not literally turn the other cheek for him to strike that one also, Jesus was at this time preparing his entire body to be struck with blows, to be crowned with thorns, and to be crucified. To borrow the words of Augustine again, hereby he rather showed what needed to be shown, namely, that those great precepts of his are not to be fulfilled by bodily ostentation, but by the preparation of the heart. For it is possible that even an angry man may visibly hold out the other cheek. How much better, then, is it for the one who, in, who is inwardly pacified to make a truthful answer and with tranquil mind hold himself ready for the endurance of heavier sufferings to come. In short, the conduct of Jesus here shows us how to keep the commands of Jesus. Jesus did no wrong in speaking out against the injustice that he received. And so this is how to turn the other cheek. It doesn't mean that we never raise our voices in protest against wickedness that is done to us, but it does mean that we don't take personal, private revenge. It means that we love our enemies, and that, as Paul says in Romans 12, we leave room for the wrath of God. We do not avenge ourselves. And this brings us then to our our third point for this morning, where we, we see the fall of Peter. We see here that Peter denied his Lord. Peter had earlier said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus had told Peter that he was going to deny him. Peter had confidently said that he would do no such thing. He would never do it. And yet here we see within the space of a few verses how Peter went from being Peter the swordsman to being Peter the denier. The two actions are quite striking in their contrast, one seeming to arise from, from boldness and the other from cowardice. But they were both equally illegitimate. Jesus had been saying all along, He was going to be arrested, that he was going to be delivered over for crucifixion. So it was foolish bravado to try to save Jesus' life with a sword slash. And it was, in this way, a fleshly attempt of misguided zeal to serve the cause of Jesus. But it wasn't long after this that Peter's flesh was directed toward self preservation at the cost of denying his discipleship. In both cases, the flesh was acting. In the first, it was a fleshly and worldly way to advance the cause of Christ. In the second, it was a fleshly means of self-preservation. Now let's consider each side of the coin here. In the first, we find that it is zeal, that zeal without knowledge is a fool's errand. Peter had wanted to help Jesus, and so in the heat of the moment, it seemed like the thing to do, pull out the sword, this is the best way to serve Jesus, this is the best way to help. This is no help at all in accomplishing the will of God. Peter had not paid close enough attention to what Jesus had been saying all along, and therefore in the heat of the moment, he did something foolish. And I dare say this kind of thing still goes on among followers of Jesus. I'm not necessarily talking about taking the sword, though I would include that under the umbrella. Sometimes violence in the name of Jesus does unfortunately happen. It should not But nevertheless, sinfully it does. But there are all kinds of things more broadly that happen where we see zealous people acting without knowledge. That is, people taking some kind of ill-considered action out of a desire to help. Out of a desire to help the cause of Christ. And this is done in all sorts of ways. Sometimes this is done by means of doctrinal innovation. And so, uh, for instance, uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher, who was the the so-called father of Protestant liberalism, the late 18th century, early 19th centuries, had the goal of making Christianity palatable to the current mindset of his day. He was appalled that people were drifting away from church, drifting away from profession of faith in Christ, and so he wanted to make Christianity palatable to the current mindset of the day. And his way of doing that was simply to give up. On the doctrines that he felt could not be accepted by the people of his time, surrendering, in other words, the doctrines he did not think he could defend. This is zeal without knowledge. It's a good thing to desire that people would become Christians. But when you seek to accomplish that by surrendering the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, what have you accomplished? Not much of anything good. And unfortunately, this trend, this general trend of trying to cut off sharp edges of the Bible has not gone away. And every generation kind of has its own thing that it wants to chop off. In some generations, maybe it's the, the creation account. Other generations, it's the, the moral teachings of, of Scripture. Sometimes it's the, the miracles of Scripture, the miracles that Jesus performed, the virgin birth, the resurrection, the atoning death of Jesus on the cross, whatever it may be. This is zeal without knowledge in action. Sometimes zeal without knowledge runs away under a term like compassion or justice. Now let me be very clear that all Christians are supposed to be compassionate. All Christians should be pursuing justice. We really should. Micah 6, eight is very clear. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The problem, though is that sometimes certain issues or causes or activities get lumped under the umbrella of compassion or the umbrella of justice when those issues or causes or activities don't actually belong there. And when that is the case, in an odd way, it bears some resemblance to Peter pulling out the sword. The goal is to help, but it can be zeal without knowledge. Scottish theologian John MacLeod once wrote that there are timid souls who are easily carried by a cry. They hear a slogan, they take it to be as good as it sounds, they answer its call, they stampede. It's a zeal without knowledge. The call for us in all things is what we find in 1 Thessalonians five twenty one and 22. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And so when things claim to be done in the name of compassion or in the name of justice, we need to examine it. Is it really the just thing? If it is, let's, let's do it. Let's support it according to our abilities and callings in the world. Is this compassion? Is it true, biblical, godly compassion? Then let's be merciful. But, again, examine everything carefully. Hold fast to the good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, in regard to the, the second action of Peter, his denials of Christ, Peter, we see, had been self-deceived. Earlier in the evening, he thought that he could withstand any temptations to run away from Jesus or to fall away from Jesus. He learned the hard way about his weakness, though. And doesn't this narrative give us a realistic picture of the way that sin works, Sin preys upon our weakness where we thought we were strong. This is what happened to Peter. Peter uh, thought that he was strong. He professed himself to be strong, but he was weak. And we also see that sin, as it were, kind of sucks us in and forms this web around us, a web that gets tighter and more complicated the more we sin. And we go further and further and... We get darker as we go along. We know from the other gospel accounts that Peter's denials became more heated the further along that he went, culminating in him taking a profane oath, essentially saying, call, calling God's wrath down upon him if he were lying in what he said. He, he made this oath. He had gotten himself in so deep that he didn't think he could backtrack out And it wasn't until the cock crowed the second time and Jesus looked at him that he snapped out of it and came to himself and was overwhelmed with grief at what he had just done. And we can all look at Peter and see how he sinned, and we should. Scripture is here for our learning. But in doing so, let there be no smug sense of self-righteousness. Rather than condemning Peter and exalting ourselves, this account calls us to look at our own hearts. It calls us to see our own weakness. calls us to see the entrapping nature of sin. These verses are a striking example of 1 Corinthians ten twelve. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. This was Peter. He had thought that he would stand. He boasted that he would be faithful unto death when, in reality, a mere statement from a servant girl <clears throat> set into motion these three denials of Jesus. And if the most eminent of the twelve apostles can fall so greatly in weakness, then you and I ought to recognize this weakness in ourselves as well, because no Christian is as immune to sin as he or she would like to be. Any one of us could do the very thing that Peter did here. We could deny Christ. Peter did. Any one of us here could fall into immorality. There was a man after God's own heart named David. Who did that? David went on to commit murder. We could do that too. Or how about idolatry? We could commit theft. It's kind of scary when you think about the things that we are actually capable of, isn't it? We want to think that we couldn't do those things, or at least that maybe if we could, we actually wouldn't do those things. But the truth of the matter is that We're not given any guarantees in that regard. Given the right circumstances, any one of us could do and might do many things that would cause us to weep bitterly once we return to our senses. The fact is that none of us is as secure from sinning as we would like to be. And the fact is that the more secure we think we are, the more likely then we are to fall. The reason for this is that you and I have been Conceived and born in sin, and even when we are born again, this does not take away our weakness. The lust of the flesh continue to rage against the Holy Spirit. Paul speaks of that in Galatians 5.17. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. This is the state of your weakness. This is the state of my weakness as well. Just look into your heart. Look into your past. Take a look at the present. Isn't it true? How many hideous and wicked temptations come into your mind? It is only by the grace of God that you have not committed those sins. Please understand that it's only by the grace of God that you have not put those terrible thoughts that you hope that no one on this earth ever finds out about. It's only by the grace of God that you haven't put those things into action. I know all about those thoughts and temptations because I have them too. And what this shows us is our desperate need of the grace of Christ every moment to sustain us, to sustain our faith, to keep us from falling into temptation. We need the grace of Christ to keep us from sinning. We need to pray that the Lord would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We need the Lord to do that for us every day, every moment. We sang about that earlier today. I need thee every hour. We do. We need the Lord more than we think we do. This is why we have to watch and pray. So this passage calls us to recognize our own weakness. And as such, it calls us out of self-reliance. So that we may instead rely on the grace of Jesus Christ. His grace to deliver us from temptation. His grace to sustain us when we're facing temptation. His grace to forgive us and restore us when we do fall. Because we do. We have and if we continue on this earth, we will do so again. And so we should be thankful this morning that we have... The blessed promise that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus is that advocate because he went willingly to the cross as we have seen here. And praise God, he is the propitiation for our sins. He's the sacrifice for us. And that's good news. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for a sobering passage like this where we see a fall of Peter and his denials. Lord, we pray that we would not walk away from this condemning Him or feeling self-righteous about ourselves, but rather that we would each look to ourselves. We would see our need for Christ daily, moment by moment. Father, we ask that You would strengthen us and build us up. We praise You for the great news that we have a Savior, that Jesus went so willingly to the cross for us, that Jesus even now, still preserves us. Father, we ask your blessing upon us. We pray that you would sustain us and build us up. For Jesus' glory, it's in his name that we pray. Amen.